I just wanted to say uh, thank you to our worship team for just their leading us in worship. And uh, Mallory, thank you for your prayer that uh, we're asking that God would allow for us to be people that can come to him broken and recognizing our need of him. And, and yet, some of you are coming off of days of great joy, and we celebrate with you in that, and so we are grateful. I want to share with you, um, we've been doing three resets over this past year. We said, let's pause, and as a church body, let's pray, seek God together, and and then um, ask, what does he want us to do? And And it was really clear to the congregation, you said, let's reach people with the gospel, let's embrace and empower uh, the emerging generations that are coming up and then let's do with this together. We are all important in this incredibly important mission that God has given us. With that, there are some of these resets. We did a reset earlier on, with regard to governance. We have a reset in staffing that is occurring as we're seeking right now an executive pastor, and we've made some movement there. I'll share that at another time. But what I wanted to share was also one of the resets was around our church name. And so I just wanted to share with you where we are at in the process we are in that third, we just finished the third one from goals to immersion. Immersion meaning just finding out all the different kind of ways things are named. We're working with a, a, a person who does some branding and helps us as a church body think through this. And we're in the evaluation stage, which means we have a group of people that we've brought together. And so it's the names, I just thought you could see those up there of people from a variety of different positions and, and ages and even cultural backgrounds and experiences. We're bringing them together um, to kind of say, God, how are you leading us and directing us? And at some point, we'll come with that a bit further. So thanks so much for all your process in that. I also wanted to mention, as we had mentioned last week, that today's story is um, is one of those stories that I you know, we we mentioned it last week. We've put it as well in some of our updates that have come out. That we just wanted people to be aware. This is a story that can be difficult and and tough to hear, but it's in the Bible, and so we wanted parents to be aware of that. This story. Um, is one that uh, could have some sensitivity to it. Uh, a brief devotional by a lady named Jen Wilkin that I read a while back. Um, she's a Bible teacher and author, and she titled this, Can We Finally Break the Silence Around Tamar? And that's the story we're looking at. She writes, for this past year, I've been teaching the book of Samuel to a group of women at my church, and we go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and I challenge them to think critically about what they are reading. The book of Samuel is filled with stories that ask us to grapple with the sovereignty of God and the severity of sin. But perhaps none is so jarring as the story of Tamar and Amnon. In Second Samuel 13. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would take these moments and allow for your word that you have given us to speak to our hearts. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, in your presence to be with us in this in Christ's name. Amen. I said this is a tough story um, to tell and to hear, to read, because it will cause some to feel great emotional pain due to their own experience potentially or due to the experience of someone they have loved, a friend. Or it could be 
that as you um, go through this story, you might be a person that as you hear it, you might react and, and, and defend and, 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 and maybe move to a place of, of arguing or fighting about some of the implications of the story, um, which is great. We always talk about we want a dialogue, and so in many ways I want to try is best I can to bring forth the truth of this scripture and to help us understand it and apply it. I mean, you may be asking, why tell this story? Well, one of the great things about the Bible is the Bible touches on all these points. One of the great things that that this uh, Wilkins had mentioned, she was going through 2 Samuel, so we've been going through Acts. We'll get started on that again next week. But when you go through the Bible kind of chapter by chapter, you, you have to face stories sometimes that you don't want to talk about, Right? Or that are difficult. And this is one of those stories. Um, Why tell this? Because Jesus himself was willing to step into these kind of topics throughout his ministry for the purpose of doing good. And, And in many ways, witnessing the reality of other people's pain, freeing people from the silent power of shame that a story can hold you in, your own narrative, And then creating an environment where God's people can come around reality and truth that others are experiencing and help them grow through it and face it and develop. So that's why the story, and I know as I had mentioned, it's kind of an uncomfortable story, but it positions us as we listen to this story in a moment to reframe and then kind of refrain our own reactions as we see the reactions and actions of people in this story. And, and one of them will be the reaction of, of a brother named Absalom. And another reaction and action will be this, the um, expression of David the king. And another reaction and then actions from it is Tamar herself in this story. And so near the end of the story is a simple sentence is why I titled the story of a desolate woman is because as it concludes in 2 Samuel chapter 13 verse 20, it just says this little sentence and Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. She was a virgin who was sexually assaulted and as a result of that, Live desolate. And desolate is a word that we don't maybe use too often, but it's this idea of, of feeling abandoned by friends, having no hope. It's, it's feeling isolated and, and devastated. It's your dreams are shattered, your hopes are, are broken, and life is hard. until you begin to move into a place of healing and and receive healing for that. And yet it's still hard at times. I was preparing this, and and, and last week when I mentioned this on a Sunday, someone shot me an email, or or really it was a text, with um, a conversation on a podcast between uh, a Brene Brown, who does a lot of things in shame, with a a lady named Tarana Burke, who also experienced this kind of violation at age six, and she shares her story, and and it's about a two-hour podcast, but I have to say um, there are so many um, thought-provoking, important things that I think are said in that, and I just, I'm grateful at times when people, when I mention things that we're going somewhere, and you kind of 
you're my, the resource of messages from time to time as well. But um, as the story begins, it begins with the lustful obsession of Amnon. And so if you look at chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, the first two verses, it says, Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. And she was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. And one of the first things I just want to say is, if you lustfully obsess long enough on something and let your mind continue in that direction, watch out. You will open your heart to someone coming in with crafty ideas to fulfill that. It says in James chapter 1, 14 through 15, when it talks about desire where we're being tempted, James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 says, and remember, when you are tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempts anyone to do wrong. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. So that's what you see happening here in Amnon. And these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. And Jesus said, the enemy is, is always coming to steal and to kill and destroy, John 10.10. 10. And, and when your heart begins to obsess. So the desire to have what he wanted there is obviously not right, but the desire for companionship, or the, it, often our desires aren't bad, it's what we do to try and fulfill them, and in this case it's obvious what he is desiring is wrong, and this lustful obsession opens the door then for wicked scheming not only in his own mind, but even for others, because one enters in, his cousin, Jonadab, who is, is not a good guy, verse 3 through 5, but Amnon had a very crafty friend. It's very similar to the words that are often used of Satan as one who comes to accuse and to tempt and to, to bring. So it, it, it right away positions this as this is coming from outside to help enforce the direction that he's going. And so his cousin, and his crafty friend is his cousin Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother Shemaiah. And one day, Jonadab said to Amnon, what's the trouble? So obviously, he was bearing it on his countenance or in the way that he was acting. Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother's Absalom's sister. Well, Jonadab said, kind of like, I got a solution for you. I'll tell you what to do. Go back to bed and pretend you're ill. And when your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come out, come and prepare some food for you. So it must have had a bedroom in the king's palace with a little kitchenette in it. And so, Anyway. Um, and then tell him you'll feel better. Uh, and then he says, and come to see you, and ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it as you watch and feeds you with her own hands. 
Now, that sounds a little bizarre, right? You know, when you get objective about things, it's amazing to me. Um, when you live in your dysfunction, it just seems so natural. But when you have someone who is outside your own dysfunction and your own ill health, they kind of go, what? I mean, David, really? Well, anyway, story um, moves from this lustful obsession and in it, um, you begin to see the craftiness. And what I want you to note in this, in this, uh, these few verses is the author of this book of Samuel is purposely seeking to highlight something. There's an intentionality of why he's writing what he's writing. And, and he, what he wants you to see in some sense here is the damaging effect of generational sin. And now you may not see that unless you're a Hebrew person who reads a lot of the Hebrew scripture, but the person who's reading this in that day, in that culture, this is going to jump out at him. David schemed, as you remember, to take Bathsheba, and his obsession led to a wicked act. Not only to the adultery, but the actual killing of her husband. So you, you, you see this already within the family system. It's a fact of life, folks, that there are sins that get carried down from generation to generation. Whether you believe it's genetic or not doesn't matter. What matters is these patterns of sin kind of happen because it's just the way God's created us as people. Sons and daughters like to mimic moms and dads, right? They even like to mimic grandpas. So I've shared this before, but it was one that just sticks out in my head. I was, one night, Grace and I were having, and we had our two grandsons there, and we were trying to feed them, which is a feat in itself to try and do, you know, like a two and a half and a, I think it was a three and a half and a six month old or something like that. And, and we were trying to feed them, and at one point, the younger one was at a place of, of just wanting to not eat, and so Grace took uh, this little one out and I'm sitting there with my, uh, I think three and a half year old at that point and we're sitting next to each other and I realized that Grace could come back or something she needed so I started yelling, Grace, Grace! And I'm yelling that as I'm getting up out, I'm walking out going, Grace, Grace! And behind me, this little guy is going, Grace, Grace! <laughs> Honestly, I look around and he looks just like me and the tone of his voice is just like me. And in that moment, I went, oh, it's just like me. (laughs) And I laugh at that because he would never call Grace Grace. He calls her Gigi. But in that moment, he was doing exactly the same thing I was doing. And we laugh at that because that's a positive, you know, it's one of those patterns that's, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But what you find here in this story, like father, like son, patterns of whether it's alcoholism or chemical dependency, and I'm not just talking about the person who's the alcoholic, I'm talking about the system that has the alcoholic as well as the one who helps perpetrate and allow that to occur. You think of patterns of like rage and anger, or patterns that often impact um, our children's children. It gets carried on from generation to generation. That's one of the things he's saying here is as you look at what's going on here, you're seeing a pattern. And sometimes somebody, as the Spirit of God begins to work in their life, stands up and says, God, no more. And it takes incredible courage to break family system patterns. 
And it's so easy just to point to uh, David, but you, you have to look at this whole family and this whole system for someone to stand up and say, we're breaking the chain. It is not going to go another generation. These underlying patterns of sin God calls us to look at. And I can, I can assure you, just ask our counseling team that did 900 hours of counseling, or 900 sessions of counseling last year. Or ask our gateway prayer team that deals with inner healing about how often they are helping to, people to break lies that are part of a system that they live in. And the word of God is so clear in this story. But the story continues. And the wicked scheme becomes a shameful act of abuse. If you continue on to verse 6 through 13, the desire gives way to scheming, and the scheming gives birth to sinful actions, according to what James tells us. When sin is allowed, when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So Amnon lay down, pretended to be sick, and when the king came to see him, Amnon asked, please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. That's some ancient remedy for getting well. I don't know. Then I can eat from her own hands. So David agreed and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. And when Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down as he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked his favorite dish for him. But when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here, Ammon told his servants. So they all left. And then he said to Tamar, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him, but as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she cried. Don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame, my desolation? And you'd be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Not just in Israel. We read about it today. Please, just speak to the king about it, and he will let you marry me. Throughout history, there's been, you know, we have different understandings. And what about a half-brother? I was reading um, the story from, um, uh, Stephen Ambrose writes in Undaunted Courage, the story of Lewis Clark and their expeditions. He early on talks about um, Lewis, uh, Meriwether Clark, uh, Lewis's father, William. Um, and it talks about cousins marrying cousins, which is a very common thing back then. In fact, he talks about within a span of, I don't know, about 60 to 100 years, there had been about 12 of these cousin versus cousin marriages, and it wasn't frowned upon. So in those days, we have different views of, of marrying. But we're going to talk about what about this half-brother, what does this look like? Because when you read this, you have to ask yourself about Tamar's words here when she says, please just speak to the king about it and he will let you marry me. What is, is this a, a, an okay thing? What is the Bible saying about this kind of arrangement? Some question whether Tamar's offer was really a plausible offer. Some Bible scholars will look at that and say, for if they were truly half-brother and sister, the relationship would be considered 
um, according to Leviticus 18, verse 9, it would be unlawful. It would be an unholy thing. It would be considered incest, according to the Old Testament. A few biblical scholars suggest that maybe they were just step-siblings, which would make the marriage then legal. So her words calling him one of the greatest fools isn't so much about that as much as it is about the sexual violation. It's her t- him taking her when they're not called in a marriage state. And he says, and he uses the word Nabal, which if you heard of Nabal, it's also the same word for fool that at one point David gets a wife from a guy who was called Nabal. So it's this idea of this really stupid, foolish in the sense of you're being ruled by darkness. And it's commonly you know, translated outrageous fool or even wicked fool. Some biblical scholars suggest that either the laws are not in effect at this time, so from the time of Moses to the time of David, there were just a sense of certain laws that kind of fell out of fashion as there was now, just like in, in other cultures, you had kings and a dynasty and, and those different laws go different ways um, and are interpreted different ways. But they, they would say that maybe they were not in effect or they were overlooked by David or they just don't apply to the royal family at that point. We don't know. But we do know what he did was wicked. As it goes in verse 14 through 19 and continues, but Ammon went listen to her. And this idea of listening and hearing and seeing is really important when we talk about sexual assault and violation. Does the person have a witness that hears and sees? He would not listen to her. And since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. And then suddenly Ammon's love turned to hate. And he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here! He snarled at her. No, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. Don't heap one thing upon another. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. And he, again, wouldn't listen to her. He shouted for his servant and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. So the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. She was wearing a Long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head, and then with her face in her hands, she went away crying. If you look at verse 18, chapter 8, um, if you look at verse 14 and 16 of chapter 13, twice the author records the same exact words. The NIV says it really well. He refused to listen to her. The first time, he refuses to listen to her and he overpowers her. And the second time, verse 16, it says he refused and he discarded her. Calling his personal servant saying, get this woman out of here. And I think really graphic. Lock the door. Do not let her back in. I don't want her in my life. I've used her, and now you have to ask yourself what is going on in his heart. The guilt, the shame, and all else that took place. The story ends with what I call the pitiful reactions and actions. So they're not just reactions, but they're also then actions 
that are taken by both Absalom and David. Verses 20 and 21. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, Is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, listen to these words, keep quiet for now. Since he's your brother, don't you worry about it. So the time I lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. So when her brother Absalom learns what Amnon has done, the NIV gives this reaction. His comforting advice is, shh, don't talk about it. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart, says the NIV. I mean, that's easy to say unless you've counseled people who have experienced that or had experiences with people who have shared their story. I uh, remember at Wheaton College when I was in my senior year and had a, a friend, a young lady, who was working to help put herself through school and she was working and she was working late at an office complex. It was 8 p.m. It was, no one was there. And a person came in to rob it, sexually violated her, and then shot her twice. What was amazing as I continued to hear about her story and she shared her story was how the physical wounds healed. But those emotional, psychological wounds continued just to hurt and fester over years. And so, quiet, he's family, which is a a real dysfunctional way of approaching things. Don't want to bring shame to the family. And you look at Absalom's reaction and actions, he reveals what I call characteristic responses. Silence and dismissal. Let's be quiet about it. Don't let it get too big of a deal. Let's just dismiss it. One explanation for Absalom's response, according to some scholars, is that Absalom is waiting and watching to see what his father David will do, which I think is a pretty good idea, probably going on. It's like, okay, I'm going to see what dad's going to do. He's the king. He's the father of the family. As king and father, he has the ability to exact justice in this situation. And so Absalom waits and he waits and he sees his father do nothing. He does nothing to Amnon. And I think Absalom's disgusted with the lack of justice. And you, you, if you have read stories of the Bible, if you haven't, let me just say, Absalom is the one at one point turns against his dad to overthrow the throne because he looks at his dad's leading, especially not so much outward. David was an incredible kingdom builder. He was not afraid of any enemy. He would stand before Goliath in the presence and power of God. He would stand before armies that would come against him. But when it came to what was going on in his own home, he failed miserably. And it began to, to cause this 
rebellion in the heart of Absalom. And Absalom sees this. And Absalom sees, since dad's doing nothing, I'm going to do something. His reaction of waiting to see, telling his sister to be quiet, dismissing it, turns into an action of complete revenge where he sets up a scheme and he kills his brother as you go in through the rest of chapter 13. And he kills his brother Amnon. Now, if you look at um, if you look at Absalom's reaction, you go, okay, I can see that, I understand it. David's reaction is a little more shocking. And David, you got to picture this again, he's often referred to as the person who has a heart after God, right? One of the things that um, in this Toronto Burke, Brene Brown conversation that I thought was very interesting and thought-provoking is that people have a difficult time holding two truths together. That's why we have so much division today is because you can't, you can't have complex conversations around things that are very complex and difficult that require a lot of nuance. It, it's really hard to hold a guy like David. He's either your hero who followed after God with his whole heart and you kind of excuse his sins and have a difficulty with that. Or, as I know of people, I remember telling people, I really love David, I love his psalms, I love this. And the person just looked at me and said, I can't stand David. There's a lady. This is a number of years ago. She said, I can't stand David because of what he did to Bathsheba, because of the way he led his family. How do you hold two truths together? We don't do that. We live so binary. We have in parties in politics that are binary. And it's a whole other, if I was reading a book, this would be a footnote to something else, but we'll hold off on that and maybe do that as Q&A. Um, but if you look at David's reaction, it says when King David heard what happened, here's what it says, he was very angry and, and though Absalom never spoke to Ammon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. And the NIV translates King's reaction a bit more, uh, with more force. <clears throat> it says in the NIV, when King David heard all this, he was furious. He was, he was in a rage. Yet there's no public denouncement of Ammon. There's no vindication of Tamar. There's no justice, no words of comfort or kindness to his daughter. Just impotent, mute anger. He's silent, he takes no action against Amnon, and he opens the door for more of these patterns of sin, which now leads to death, just like in his own with Bathsheba and her husband. Biblical scholars ask, why does David's anger translate only into silence and action? Why? And it's because David sees, I think, in his sons an application of his own grievous sins. Bible teacher Jen Wilkins writes, David's guilt renders him silent. Tamar's plea to Amnon as he overpowers her rings in the ears of the reader. As for me, where could I carry my shame, she shouts. 
And Absalom's dismissive response and David's profound silence give us our answer. Nowhere. And I've heard that as I've counseled and talked to people who have experienced this. Where do you go? Will people witness it or will they dismiss it? Will they ask you to be silent about it? The church isn't much better. I mean, we could look at Catholic church. You look at the Southern Baptist church. I, mean, I could name them all. The one place to be safe. I had someone come to me a few weeks ago, shared with me someone who had done something and it was really something that would have been quite shameful and was asking how do they handle that with the group that they're involved in. And I said, man, you tell them that you love them and that Jesus tells you that he wants you to come. If you look at the people who flocked around Jesus, they're the people who, who sinned or had been sinned against and they felt their shame and they needed a witness of someone to stand there and say, I love you. That's what followers of Jesus do. So there's just three lessons that I want to share quickly as we... Um, then move into some time just to sing and worship. The first is denial is not an option. We must learn to tell these stories even as, as difficult as they can be to hear or to say in public. I mean, how many of you have heard the story of Tamar? I don't know, our lights might not be working or something, but it's, or maybe it's purposeful. Maybe it should be. Maybe God did that so people can process I mean, how many have heard messages or teaching on? I haven't. But teaching the story is uncomfortable and is shocking and is in some ways traumatizing as it is. I have to say, I remember when all the stuff was happening with George Floyd, I remember thinking, I just want to understand this more. And I looked at a few different documentaries or movies, and in my spirit I said, I just don't want to be traumatized. You ever seen that where you just don't want to look at another picture of a hungry child? And yet sometimes God puts us in front of us so that we can, it's not for the purpose of traumatizing. You need to know what you can handle and what you can't. But sometimes he wants us to really hear the story, to be able to understand it, and to witness someone else's pain. Teaching the story is important, and, and I want to show you why it's important. Is, is we need to know in a general sense, denial isn't an option because we need to know that the Bible paints a down-to-earth, real-life picture of reality. This is the world we live in. There are people who you go to work with or go to school or you're in your community with that have experienced this and live in silence of shame. There are people among us who've maybe never shared and gotten open with it. So in a general sense, the Bible, one thing i just grateful about the Bible is how many religious books in other faiths share so blatantly the good and bad of people. Our heroes we love, and in the same way you can look at them and hold the other truth, and you can almost just despise what they've done. 
And then specifically to anyone who's experienced this level of shame or violence, you're experiencing this pain. Your story deserves a hearing. You need to know this. You need to know that we as a body, and we may not all do this well, but I want to say as a senior pastor, we want you to know that your grief is our grief. Your shame is undeserved. We're here to help you carry to the cross of Jesus because we believe the cross has the power to bring forgiveness and healing into a person's life. And we are a committed family. We are committed to you. And we're committed to one another. And we're committed to learn how to, how to walk together in dialogue. How to listen and try and understand. How to d- disagree and still love each other and stay in conversation. I share with you this Toronto Burke. She, people don't realize this. It's so often... The, the good things that God sometimes allows to emerge get politicized and Hollywoodized. If you go to Tarana Burke's story, it goes back 12 or more years where she started going into the basements of churches, specifically around Selma, and then also community centers, and she was meeting with 12, 13, and 14-year-old girls who had an experience like hers, and she was suicidal, and she had all these other things until she began to process and began to find forgiveness and healing and the different things that needed to take place, and it all started there, and what she would do around is she would let these girls tell their story, help them develop, and help them to walk through it, and, and, and then she started a little thing called Me Too, that now you talk about it and people immediately take sides. Well, that's just a political thing to get this and that's that. And it wasn't even for that. It was just to bring healing. She shares a bit of her story and some of the things she's learned. She makes the point that I think scripture makes so often that if you refuse to listen, you refuse to see and witness what's going on in someone else's heart. It's like standing in an island, you're in your desolate, deserted island, and, and you're waiting for someone to rescue you. You're looking for recovery, and you see a ship go by, and you're yelling and screaming and waving, and you got a flag, so you're doing everything. And, and it's a good chance that if they don't hear you, they don't see you. Not, not always, but most often. And if they don't hear you, they don't see you. If you don't hear the pain, you don't witness the pain, you probably don't see them. And Jesus wants people to be seen. Tamar was defiled and cast off by the son of David, and none came to her aid. The true son of David, Jesus, was also defiled, and he was cast off for us that no daughter in the family of God should ever carry shame for the abuse that they have suffered. There should be no desolate women in the church, only daughters of God who are seen and cherished. And the second is this, silence is not an option. If denial is not an option for us as a church and that we need to be the kind of people who listen to these stories, hear these stories, and see the people, we also need to know that silence isn't an option. Just getting angry isn't enough. When you see evil, you must, you must speak up. David got angry. His inaction should spur us to act. His speechlessness should prompt us to speak. That's why this story is told. There's a line that um, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer used. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood up against the evil of the Nazi system, at one point, he stands up in, in, in one of his books. He says, 
Here's the problem with silence in the face of evil, he says. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And the problem with silence in the face of evil is that our silence actually does speak. It does carry a message. It often carries a message that your shame is merited. One of the the, the difficulties of this situation in, in her situation is that she felt probably, it could be, I think how easy it would be for her to feel complicit in this. She could have just reasoned in her mind, you know what, um, I easily allowed for this to happen. Why did I agree to, to do this? I should have just refused. Why did I let him send me everyone out of the room? I should have spoke up. Why did I wear that dress that day? Maybe I asked for this. Why did I try and reason with him? Why didn't I just yell and scream and do everything I could to run away from him? Just can you imagine how easy it is and how often you hear these stories that Satan in these lies say you're complicit when there's no complicity at all because the shame just holds them locked in. Another message I think people hear is that your story's too shocking, it's too lewd, it's too uncomfortable, it's too traumatizing, I'd rather not hear it. It's too messed up for me, so in a sense they hear this message, it's probably too messed up for God. And so, just as denial is an option, silence isn't an option. When you see evil, you must speak up. It's like those airport signs you see, when, they, when you see it, it says, if you see say something, you what? Say something. So Try that again. If you see something... God's calling us to be say-something people. And then the last is courage is the only option. You have to expose this to the light. So I'm going to speak to a person, if you have been in this position, if you're online listening to this, you need to know that staying in the shame of darkness will kill you. It strengthens the lies that condemn you. It will strengthen those lies of complicity where you start relaying in your mind, maybe I did this or I could have done this or I should have done this and I da 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 And so maybe I'm somewhat to be, and, and Satan is the accuser who loves to come, what? To steal, kill, and destroy, and he'll kill you with lies. And shame loves darkness. And the way shame is attacked is by exposing it to the light to appropriate people who you know as best you know in your, your gut who are trustworthy people to share your story and then to get some help. Courage is the only option as you bring the pain, the wound, the shame for healing. Strength in lies when you stay in shame. It further isolates you. I just cannot emphasize enough how important it is not to stay in a shamed place of silence. You need to courageously speak and expose it to the light of Christ and to a trusted community. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And as they come, I just want you to hear, silence only serves the oppressor and the accuser, Satan. By telling the story of Tamar, we are telling the women in our churches and within our community and those that we may not even be aware of, that their voices, when they're grown quiet and silent in shame, need to speak up. Not to bury their shame or to seek to carry it alone, but to invite 
it into the light and into the presence of God and to another person to begin to move into healing.